Hi everyone, welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Michael Calori, a senior editor at Wired, and I am joined remotely by my co-host, Wired senior writer, Lauren Good. Hey Mike, I'm here at home, as I have been for the past several weeks taping this podcast, but this is the week that lots of people left their homes and went out into the streets, and we're going to talk about that on this week's podcast. That's right. Uh, we are also joined this week by Wired senior writer Sydney Fusell. Hi, Sydney. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Of course, thanks for coming back. Uh, as Lauren mentioned, it has been a very momentous and emotional week across the country and around the world. Millions of people have gathered to protest police brutality after a viral video showed an officer in Minneapolis killing George Floyd, an unarmed black man. The sheer scale of the demonstrations and the increasingly violent police response have dominated the national conversation. Police departments have also been scrutinized for their use of enhanced surveillance technology, which is often provided by tech companies like Amazon and Google. While these companies make statements condemning systemic racism and violence, they've also provided platforms and tools that worsen inequality. On the second half of the show, Wired senior writer Lily Hay Newman will be joining us to talk about how protesters can protect themselves from these digital surveillance methods. But first, let's get into some of the methods themselves. Sydney, you wrote a story for Wired this week about tech's ties to law enforcement. Tell us more. Yeah, so um, I was definitely one of those people who was sort of shocked and stunned and horrified by what I was seeing. And at first, I had that sort of like initial very good rush of, oh, it's so good to see all these companies speaking out for their employees, for the people who use their products, for the people who are affected. Um, there was also, at the same time, a very big backlash where people were saying, well, it's great that companies like Amazon or Google are sort of stepping up and using their platforms to speak out in support of the movement for black lives. But at the same time, there's been a lot of criticism about the relationship between big tech, Silicon Valley, these platforms, and the police. And so one of the things I tried to talk about in the piece I wrote was how the very companies that are now tweeting out Black Lives Matter have had years of controversy and years of pushback from civil rights advocates saying that they're furnishing tools to police that are making it harder for uh, on-the-ground protesters, harder for people of color. Um, one of the best examples is uh, Salesforce. Uh, Salesforce and GitHub both tweeted out in support of Black Lives Matter. They both have contracts with uh, Customs and Border Patrol. Um, GitHub very controversially um, had a contract with ICE uh, last year. And so you sort of end up with the situation where, oh, thanks so much for the support, but you're furnishing tech to police. Um, similarly, Amazon has a product called recognition, which is spelled with a K. We don't know why. Um, recognition is a facial recognition product that's been sold to law enforcement. Um, there's been a lot of talk about whether or not it is functional on just like a purely is it accurate. Um, a lot of research has showed that recognition actually performs less accurately on darker skinned faces, which leads to a whole other discussion about um, racial profiling and whether or not someone arrested and charged with a crime because of a recognition match, whether or not that actually is the person, and whether or not the use of Amazon recognition could lead to a further stigmatization and a further um, over-policing of people of color if police departments were to use it. And, you know, again, this has been going on for years. I remember covering this in 2017. Um, and Jeff Bezos and Andy Jassy and, you know, these um, higher-up Amazon executives spoke in favor of recognition, and they said it would make people safer, and they defended it. And so it's really um, unsettling to now see them in, you know, tweeting in favor of 
Black Lives Matter, in favor of the protesters, when they have in the past defended the very tools which have been criticized for potentially increasing the inequality and increasing some of the issues, the frustrations that people are protesting against um, right now. So a big part of this has been the relationship between big tech and policing. And the other part of this, um, which is where we get into talking more about Facebook and Reddit, is this issue of free speech versus policing white supremacy. Um, Reddit CEO Steve Huffman, he was tweeting in support of Black Lives Matter when the former CEO, Ellen K. Powell, said, and I quote, you don't get to say Black Lives Matter when Reddit nurtures and monetizes white supremacy and hate all day long. It was the biggest, most shocking call out I'd seen as I was writing the article. And one of the things Ellen Powell says is that Reddit did not do enough to stop white supremacy. Reddit allowed people on places like R. The Donald to come together and say these racist, problematic things. And so now why are you saying that, you know, you support Black Lives Matter when before you weren't doing enough to stop the some of the racist speech? All of that brings us to what is happening right now with Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg has said that while he vehemently disagrees with President Trump's comments about, you know, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. He says, I disagree with them. He declined to remove that message when it was cross-posted from Twitter to Facebook. Um, Trump originally tweeted that. He moved that message to Facebook. That exact same message was unacceptable on Twitter. It is acceptable on Facebook. Zuckerberg has pushed back against the backlash he's receiving. He's saying, yes, I can support Black Lives Matter, and yes, I can say that while this is objectionable, I'm going to keep it on the site. And that's caused a lot of pushback within Facebook. A lot of employees staged what they called a virtual walkout. Right now, a lot of Facebook employees are remote, but they still took the time to log off and protest. And um, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg met with a lot of different civil rights organizations who specifically voiced their concerns about Zuckerberg's decision to leave that message up, which is there's a clear connection between this, the violence that we're seeing right now and this, this call to arms to stop looters using gun violence. And they basically said that if you can't see the connection between these two things, you're absolutely not in support of black lives. Although Facebook has offered, I believe it was $10 million to um, different racial justice organizations at the same time that Zuckerberg is defending his decision not to remove that message. So it sounds like what you're saying, Sydney, is there's hypocrisy at multiple levels. Tech companies are putting out statements of solidarity while they're either deploying tools that are used by law enforcement or they're just allowing divisive or outright racist content to live on their platforms. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more, if we know at this point, what kind of tech is currently being deployed on the ground during demonstrations and protests to potentially track protesters? What do we know about that? Um, one specific technology that I'm especially interested in right now and hopefully for a future story is called uh, Project Greenlight. This is a, a system of cameras in Detroit, um, Detroit, Michigan. And what's so fascinating about Project Greenlight is essentially it's sort of like a mix of, you know, you have these cameras that were furnished by the, these CCTV cameras that were furnished by the city, but then businesses could also register their cameras to the same database so that with police officers, if there's some type of crime or some, or some issue, police officers can very easily see, okay, here's the cameras that we have, either that are ours or that were registered from business owners or homeowners or whatever. We can see exactly where the cameras are, where they're pointing. And so they have all these different eyes. It's a public-private partnership that combines all these different real-time CCTV camera. And what's so interesting about that is how the, the use 
has changed so much just over the past year. So this was introduced as a crime deterrent. Um, this was supposed to stop things like, you know, uh, drive-by shootings, um, burglaries, things like that. Then it got used for uh, social distance um, measures. And so there was a real issue with people going out, you know, violating the, the quarantines, people going out past curfew. There was issues with people doing large gatherings. You know, you could sort of upload or, like, say, you could flag and say, hey, we have these footage of a barbecue or something like that. And now it's being used to monitor protesters and, you know, stop looting. And so one of the things that people who study surveillance, one of the things that they really talk about is that once you introduce surveillance that you think is just sort of, like, on the edge, like, oh, it's only for violent crimes, it morphs, it changes, it becomes... Uh, it makes it, it insists upon itself. It becomes something that you learn to rely on. So at first it was just for very, very violent crimes, but most of society it wouldn't touch. But then the quarantines happened and it, now it's used for that. And then, you know, the protests are happening, now it's used for that. And so with Project Greenlight, which may or may not include drones, we know that Detroit has looked into drone contracts. We don't know, we can't confirm it or not, but I think that Project Greenlight is sort of the perfect example of why even a little bit of surveillance can be so dangerous and why we do need to really, really push these tech companies because they may introduce some surveillance technology for one specific purpose, but it will mutate and it will insist upon itself as being you know, important and long-lasting um, no matter what the situation is. One place where that's particularly striking is geolocation on smartphones. Uh, it's a feature that was sold to us as a way to add convenience, so you can see relevant information as you're walking around or searching for things. When your phone knows where you are, that sense of place can deliver information that can be helpful to you. But as we've seen, and as you talk about in your story, there's a way that the location information being broadcast by your phone is being used by law enforcement. It involves the tech companies, particularly Google. It's called a geofencing warrant. What can you tell us about it? Right. So geofencing warrants was um, something that I believe in early 2018, late 2017, a few people were looking into. And the basic it's a little bit complex, but basically um, a crime occurs within you know a specific area. Let's say there's a robbery, there's a shooting or something like that. What a geofence warrant is, police will go to Google and they'll say we would like the data on the devices that are within this specific area. And normally it's around 100 meters, 200 meters around the crime. And so basically what Google does is it offers just like a not fully anonymized, just like random numbers for the devices within this specific area. And the police are the ones who have to do that detective work of saying, okay, who was in this specific area at this specific time? Was there any shady movement? They sort of narrow it down to the, you know, just a few. And then from there, they'll go back to Google and say, okay, we have these four or five devices that were in this specific area at this specific time who move in patterns that look shady to us. Can you give us information on these four or five? And so the defense from police departments is that, well, although everyone in this area gets pinged, we only know who very few of these people are. It's mostly anonymized. Most people don't even know this would happen to them. You really have no way of knowing if this has happened to you because unless the police contact you, you wouldn't know that you were in that initial string of uh, randomized, anonymized uh, number sets. And so there's a lot of concern, though, about this idea that just by being in the vicinity of the crime, and vicinity is very um, is doing a lot of work right now because researchers have found much later that the area, the scope of the warrants tend to be much bigger than the scene of the crime. So you may know the house that the scene of the crime happened in. Why do you need 
the devices for the entire block or the entire neighborhood. And so one of the things that there's been a lot of concern about is that why should people who live in high crime areas be subjected to being involved in these random searches and what other types of data could potentially be shown to police. And so there was a problem in North Carolina where police had sought five different geofencing warrants and two of them were in the same public housing complex. Anyone who knows anything about public housing, those tend to be very, very dense to get a lot of people for each block. And so you end up with a lot of people being routinely put through this search just for the sake of whatever crime it is. Um, And I think that really speaks to, first and foremost, a lack of technological literacy on judges. Like, again, you do need a warrant for this. You do have to go through the court system. But I don't think a lot of judges are aware of how this is working and how many people get caught up in this. And I think that ultimately, Google Google releases transparency reports in which it talks about, hey, you know, this is how much data we give to police. And I I recommend everyone look at these transparency reports because it has doubled in the past two years. In 2017, they gave around, there were around 10,000 requests from police in terms of requesting Google user data. And for uh, 2019, there were 20,000. And so we're, this reliance on Google user data in criminal investigations is increasing. It's becoming normalized. And so going back to what we were saying about Project Greenlight, it may seem like an edge case that they only do occasionally for a few people. But if it follows sort of like the rules of surveillance, it could it could potentially be normalized and be the type of thing that gets used for lots of different lots of different uses. Um, It's also worth noting that Google released a lot of information about uh, social distancing um, broken down to the county in terms of like how much people were traveling before and after some of these quarantines started. So again, the data that was created for the purpose of maps and Uber became useful in terms of tracking social distancing and is now useful in terms of whether or not you were or or not around the scene of the crime. The malleability of this data is, um, it can't be overstated. We have to be very, very cautious about how it's being used. And Sydney, very quickly, it's also worth pointing out that some of the tools that are being used are flawed. And they're flawed because the technology that underpins them, which we collectively refer to as AI, right? AI now applies to so many different things in the world that we cover. But <laughs> but uh, we certainly get a lot of pitches where things claim to be using AI. Mm-hmm. But if the data sets that are informing those technologies are biased to begin with, and that inherently results in fallible technology, right? Talk about that quickly. Absolutely. I mean, I think the be- the best example that I've seen as it relates to the problem of biases in, I- in AI relates to this idea of tracking or preventing crime. And so it's like, oh, you know, like how- what what rate do crimes occur in this area? Um, can we predict from there when crimes will occur? And it's it really doesn't, it really overlooks what the definition of crime is and what types of crimes get reported and what types of communities have those interactions with police for the crimes, quote unquote, to be reported. And so the same crimes can be happening in different neighborhoods, but you would not see the data reflect that. You would see a high crime in areas with high policing and you would see low crime in areas with low policing because that's where the the crime reports, the criminal reports, those statistics are being generated in areas where there are police officers to record that data. And so when you look at what a police officer does, you have to remember that there's a person who's going through and collecting this data and sorting it and everything else. And I will just say that there's a lot to be said about the types of crimes that we're going to use this data and use these resources to predict and prevent. Um, And I think we should really talk about some of the 
why we're really trying so hard to prevent certain crimes and not others, and which ones can be reflected in the data and which, which can't be. All right. Well, right now we're going to take a break. And then when we come back during the second half of the show, we're going to talk about some practical tips on how to protest safely. Welcome back. Protesting is, of course, a constitutional right for all Americans. But in light of increased police surveillance and the use of force that we've all seen on TV, on Twitter, and with our very own eyes, if you want to go out and demonstrate, you should plan to do it safely. To help us talk through that, we are now joined by Wired senior writer Lily Hay Newman. Hi, Lily. Hi, good to be back with you. Thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, Lily, you and our Wired colleague Andy Greenberg put together a guide about how to protest safely in this age of digital surveillance. Um, why don't you just give us some of the ways people can protect themselves out there? Yeah, so we were specifically looking at how you can protect your privacy and you know your data and sort of your digital security while you're out protesting. Uh, and I, I think there are two things to consider when you think about this because you know, also there's a lot of other safety considerations when you're protesting, you know, physical safety, gear you might want to bring with you, you know, staying hydrated, all these things, and especially, uh, you know, protesting in a pandemic. But there's also things to consider in terms of your privacy, and all of that starts with your smartphone. You want to both be thinking about the wireless emanations from your phone and, you know, the wireless communication that's happening between your smartphone and cell towers or wireless access points, things like that. Uh, and then you also want to think about the data that is locally stored on the device or accounts that you're logged into on the device through apps, you know, or the mobile browser, things like that. Because if your device is confiscated by police, if, you know, police detain you and ask you to uh, unlock your device or demand that you unlock your device, things like that, they can suddenly gain access to all that data on your phone. So the first thing we think about is just do you need to bring a phone at all? Uh, for most people, in most cases, the answer is yes, realistically, in today's world. But if you're going to a protest nearby where you live or you know, where you're driving there with a group and, you know, you're ready to kind of have your people with you, things like that. It could be a situation where you actually could leave your phone at home. And that's kind of the best way, if it's possible, to just negate all of these concerns. You know, that's the way that you can know for sure that no one's tracking your phone, no one's going to see the data on your phone because the phone isn't there at the protest. So, Lily, it sounds like you really think people should try to leave their phones at home. But let's say that you've weighed your options, you want to be able to photograph things or capture video, or you just feel like you need your phone on you for other safety reasons, and you've decided to bring it with you. What are your options then? Some ideal scenarios would be something like bringing a burner phone, like, you know, a, a cheap uh, prepaid device that, you know, you might just pick up at a corner store or, you know, a drugstore, something like that. Uh, and, you know, it has as little registered to you as possible, things like that. And, you know, it's not, it's just sort of a, a throwaway type of thing. It's not your normal number, all those things. That would really help reduce the uh, usefulness of data that, you know, a surveillance uh, uh, dragnet would collect about that phone. 
another option for people who have a second phone, you know, maybe it's a work phone or, you know, various re reasons that you might have a second device. Uh, if it has less data on it, if you use it less often, you know, if, if you don't really have a lot logged into it and it's uh, kind of more convenient to keep it more empty, uh, that's another good option to bring with you. If you're at the point where you're thinking, I just need to bring my primary device as the only device I have, I need it to coordinate or in case I get in a bad situation, here are sort of some things to consider with that. You know, Sydney was talking about uh, geolocation as a factor in this. We're also thinking about uh, devices known as stingrays. Uh, or mobile access points that you know put out Wi-Fi that are controlled by uh, law enforcement. These are like fake cell towers or fake hotspots where they provide your your phone with some connectivity, but really what they're doing is intercepting data, and they sort of trick your phone into connecting because they're a strong signal close by, uh, but really they're not a legitimate cell tower or a legitimate Wi-Fi hotspot. So. You know, those are some of the types of things that you're concerned about. One thing you can do is just keep your phone off as much as possible uh, and kind of only turn it on if you need to make that emergency call or if you need to check where someone is. So another option, which is uh, recommended by a lot of activists as a sort of similar to like keeping your phone at home and not bringing it at all in some sense, uh, is to use what's called a Faraday bag. Uh, it's like an enclosure where radio signals can't penetrate. So the, all the antennas and various sensors in your phone, they're still in your phone just like normal, but they're in this enclosure, in, in this case a pouch or a bag, uh, and nothing can talk to them basically. You can leave your phone on, you know, everything can just kind of be normal, but when it's in the bag, you're good. And when you want to use it, you sort of take it out briefly, use it, and then you put it back in the bag. And it's kind of an easy way. You can't like slip up and turn it on by mistake when you didn't mean to or something because just sort of physically in the bag. And then the other thing to think about when we were talking about data on the phone, I, the, the crucial thing here is just locking your device and making sure on Android phones that you have full disk encryption turned on uh, that's in the security settings. Uh, and that is automatic on iOS uh, if you add a passcode. So Lily, one question I have is if you are compelled by authorities to show them your phone or unlock your phone, what are your rights? Your rights are that you shouldn't be forced to unlock a device for a search in the middle of a protest, in the middle of a street, you know, um, without arrest, without going you know, to a precinct without a search warrant, things like that. But uh, in practice, you know, the concern that we're thinking about is just the heat of the moment, you know, and, and the sort of realistic, uh, your realistic feelings about your safety in that moment or, you know, what you feel comfortable with. So um, there's seemingly a difference in terms of the different ways that you can set your phone to unlock, either with biometrics, with a face print, with a thumbprint, with a, a passcode. Um, what is the difference and which one would you recommend for people that are going to protest? I think the easiest answer is just, you know, PIN or a passcode uh, is always sort of the recommendation, preferably uh, six digits. 
that is sort of the baseline recommendation for going to a protest. Some operating systems offer a feature for sort of emergency convert to passcode. So it's like if you use the thumbprint or you use, you know, a face unlock because it's convenient in your daily life, but suddenly you're in a situation where you're thinking, well, I don't want someone to sort of grab my wrist and, wrist and just put my finger on the phone. Uh, you can press, you know, like the home button and the side button or, you know, something like that to uh, initiate this feature to, to where it'll ask for your passcode. You know, if it's too much, too much effort in general, I think it's still worth setting up for when you're going to the protest and then you can turn it off later and switch back to biometrics or whatever you prefer. Um, I would also add that uh, I know there's a feature on, on Android phones where you can leave the phone unlocked if you're carrying it on your person. Like it knows, you know, since the phone, the accelerometer in the phone knows which way gravity is, it knows when you're carrying it in your pocket or you're walking around with it. It also knows when you're close to your home and it will stay unlocked when you're close to your home. These are all things that you have to opt into and to turn on. And if you turn those on, you should definitely turn all of those off. Um, basically anything that makes it easier for your phone to automatically unlock. Yeah, I know it sounds like sort of a lot of different eventualities and a lot of different things to consider, but I, I think the most important concept is just having it in your mind to like, oh, there's, there's a difference between bringing my phone with me and leaving it at home, or there's a difference between taking some precautions to keep it off or keep it in a special bag versus just using it totally normally. And I think if you just have that in the back of your mind, you'll naturally make some, you know, some small modifications as you're able to, to protect yourself a little better. Uh, all right. Well, I highly suggest that everybody who's listening to this goes out and reads the piece that Lily and Andy wrote about protecting your privacy during protests, and also that you read the guide that our own Lauren Good and Lauren Strampy on the gear team wrote about practical tips for, in general, practical tips for protesting out in the streets, uh, for exercising your First Amendment rights and doing it in a way that protects your safety and your privacy and, of course, your sanity. Uh, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we will go through the recommendations from everybody on the show. Okay, Lily, let's get started with you. What is your recommendation for our listeners? So since I suggested that people use a Faraday bag to hold their smartphone in if they go protest, uh, I have a Faraday bag recommendation. Just trying to do a service here, you know? So uh, Mission Darkness Faraday bags, they're made by MOS Equipment. Um, they're just exactly, you know, the type of thing you need. Uh, it's just a pouch. They even have sort of other formats like duffel bags where the whole bag is a, you know, a Faraday bag, things like that. Uh, you know, pricing for the pouches is about $25 to $100 and more for the bigger bags. But the, the reason I wanted to give a Faraday bag recommendation is that uh, they're not all legit. You know, if you just sort of Google it and find something random, it may not actually block everything you want to block. So this was actually a recommendation from Harlow Holmes, who's director of newsroom security at the Freedom of the Press Foundation. Uh, and yeah, Mission Darkness Faraday Bags, it's a good option. Great. Uh, Sydney, what's your recommendation? 
Uh, my recommendation is that for the people who, like me, were just sort of very overwhelmed with social media and still wanted to just like learn a lot about riots and protests and some of the things that are happening right now, there's a wonderful documentary on Netflix called LA92. LA92. It's about LA in 1992. Um, the sort of chaos surrounding what happened with Rodney King, and it's super relevant. There's no narration whatsoever. It's entirely archival footage, and I think it's so incredible about it is that it really showed how long we've struggled with this idea of the viral video. I think that's something that we're seeing right now. Social media is flooded with tons of videos from tons of different viewpoints. But, you know, with what happened in 1992 and, of course, the infamous Rodney King video, really from the very beginning, activists and people on the ground were having a discussion about, like, what do people think when they see violence in videos? And I think that now that we're being completely flooded with different videos of horrific violence, I really would like people to watch this documentary and really ruminate on what it means to watch this stuff online and to share it um, and whether it's serving the purpose that you think it is. I can second that. Uh, I was in high school in Southern California during um, the Rodney King incident, and uh, I found the documentary to be very powerful um, in a way just as almost as powerful as living through it the first time. Uh, Okay, Lauren, what is your recommendation? My recommendation is a Google Doc that is being shared widely on the Internet right now. I first saw it shared by Brittany Packnett Cunningham, who's the co-founder of Campaign Zero and the co-host of Pod Save the People. But the document was actually compiled by Sarah Sophie Flicker and Alyssa Klein. And it is a list of anti-racism resources aimed at white people, particularly, uh, you know, white people and parents to try to deepen the work that we can do to be anti-racist, ways that we can start at home, ways that we can do this on social media and um, in our workspaces. There's a list of books, podcasts, articles. Um, Some of the articles are, I mean, it's going to take a lot of work, but that's the point. (laughs) They're really worth reading. Um, Videos to watch. Um, There's a really comprehensive list of books to read. So we're going to link to this document in the podcast notes, and I hope that you all take a look. Thanks for that, Lauren. That's uh, very valuable. So for my recommendation, uh, I'm going to share a little bit of information about myself. I am a white man, and like many other white people, I am wondering what I can do to help and what I have heard from my friends, white, black, brown, is that the best thing that you can do is open your wallet. There are a lot of people asking for money right now. There are a lot of places you can donate to right now. And if you're unsure of where to go, I'm going to give you two places that you can donate that have been uh, that have been vetted. And there are great organizations doing really great work towards police reform and criminal justice reform. One is the organization that Lauren just mentioned called Campaign Zero, which is working towards reforming um, police activities and the way that particularly black people and communities of color are policed in this country. And the other is the Grassroots Law Project, which is working specifically towards criminal justice reform. So that's my recommendation. Open your damn wallet, give money to these organizations that are doing good in the world right now at this moment. All right, that is our show for this week. Uh, Lily, thanks again for joining us. Stay safe, everyone. And Sydney, thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. If you have any feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. The show is produced by Boone Ashworth, and our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Goodbye, and we'll be back next week.
Hi everyone, Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.